We are continuing uh, our series in backsliding. I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm writing, but uh, a lot of the chapters, uh, I'm not preaching, I'm just taking a snippet of, of things. There's some chapters that don't really preach well, I don't think. I suppose I could try, <laughs> but don't want to find out that way. So I'm going to stick to a few basic um, topics as we go through. Uh, today we're looking at the fear of God, so um, that is, uh, I think, a very important aspect of not backsliding, and the text that we will be looking at uh, comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and I'm just going to read verse 1, you can turn there. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Well, let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word and for its clarity, but also for uh, the fact that not only does it promise, but, is, but it exhorts us. And we know that if it promises us, the exhortations will be fulfilled in and through Christ by the Spirit. And so we praise you that we can have great confidence as we hear these words that we will not be found wanting. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, the fear of God to me is a very... A beautiful but misunderstood doctrine. And I think one of the reasons I know it's a misunderstood doctrine is a very simple reason. Uh, you don't hear a lot of preaching on the fear of God. And if you understood the fear of God, you would actually hear more preaching. Now, in a sense, that doesn't make any sense to you, because if I'm saying it, uh, you should be saying, well, why uh, are you not preaching on the fear of God? Well, I did actually do a series many years ago, but such is the changing nature of this church and all of the new faces, you may uh, rightfully put your hand up and say, I have not heard a series on the fear of God. Um, and so this sermon will have to suffice for the series that you missed. Now, when we talk about the fear of God, uh, we have to remember how that is a bygone uh, era in which Christians were referred to as God-fearing men or women, and even more shocking, a God-fearing boy or girl. Uh, can you imagine, uh, you know, uh, you have your child described and someone says, oh, you've got uh, four children. I says, yes, I have four God-fearing children. People would think, this guy's a little serious, don't you think? A little heavy. I don't want to meet these children in a dark alley. And indeed, you don't want to meet my children in a dark alley. But you see how we've lost uh, the language that was actually quite prominent in the church at some time where someone was called a God-fearing believer. And it was a badge of honor. And now it's a relic of the past. And we have to ask ourselves, why is that? Partly because... Uh, we've lost the beauty of this doctrine, as I've said, and partly because we don't understand that it is actually an extremely valuable thing to be considered a God-fearer. Now, 
you can look through the Scriptures and find uh, multitudes. And we will look at many of these verses because I want you to be absolutely certain that I haven't found one verse and said, ha, I'm going to build a whole doctrine of the fear of God based upon this. But even Nehemiah, he's uh, writing, the wall has been built and the doors have been set up, and the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed, and worship is being reestablished, and there is revival. And then we read in verse 2 of chapter 7, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. So they were in charge over Jerusalem in a time of prosperity and blessing where God is present. And then Nehemiah describes him in the following, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Why was he given charge? He is a God-fearing man. So there you have biblical precedent. If nothing else, there were God-fearers. And a lack of a healthy, notice I've chosen my words carefully, a lack of a healthy Fear of God is a universal symptom of backsliding. Once you rid the Christian life of a healthy fear of God, backsliding is inevitable. In fact, it's one of the most obvious symptoms of a backslider. They lose the fear of God. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, as we read earlier, since we have these promises. And if you read 2 Corinthians from chapter 1 onwards, but especially chapters uh, such as 3, which talks about beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the veil being removed, and chapter 4 and 5 move into our uh, heavenly dwelling, and, and there's so many promises. We call this evangelical promises, gospel promises. Since we have gospel promises, beloved, and so he's speaking to Christians, we are to cleanse ourselves, so the context now is sanctification, from every defilement of body and spirit, since we are temples of the Holy Spirit, which you see in chapter 6. But what do we then do? In light of the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in us, in light of the fact that we have promises, in light of the fact that God will bring to our eyes by faith the sight of Jesus Christ, what are we to do? We're to bring holiness to completion in the fear of God. Now, John Murray uh, has some very uh, perceptive comments on this. And he says, The fear of God, which is the soul of godliness. When you think of godliness, the soul of it, or the, you could also say the marrow of it, the fear of God, which is the soul of godliness, does not consist, so this is what it is not, in the dread which is produced by the apprehension of God's wrath. So the fear of God that's going to help you in your godliness is not a mere dread of God's wrath. Now, he says, when reason for dread exists, such as someone outside of Christ, then to be destitute of such fear is the sign of hardened ungodliness. So somebody who is under the wrath of God and lacks that fear that judgment is upon them, they are hardened in their ungodliness. But then he says, the dread of punishment, the dread of punishment and judgment will never in and of itself, on its own, generate within us a love of God and hatred of sin. 
even the infliction of wrath will not create hatred of sin or incite us to greater love towards God. Punishment for sin has no regenerating power in and of itself. Mere punishment. The fear of God, which the soul of godliness consists, is the fear which actually does what? He says it constrains adoration and love. It is to reverence and awe and honor and worship in the highest possible way through Jesus Christ. So before Paul has come to chapter 7 in 2 Corinthians, talking about perfecting the fear of God and bringing holiness to completion in this fear of God, he has already reminded them that the veil has been taken from their eyes, that Jesus Christ is before them in all of his glory, and they're to live by faith in that reality and to be reminded that the Holy Spirit dwells within them. And that is the type of fear that the Scriptures say is able to help you. It is a reverential fear. Now, there are two types of fears that theologians have distinguished. There is reverential fear, and we call this filial fear. It's the fear that you have as a child of God. And there's servile fear, the type of fear where you just look at God, but don't understand God on God's terms. Now, what is the latter person like? The latter person sees God primarily as judge, primarily as righteous and holy, primarily in terms of those what we call negative attributes where there is justice and wrath and judgment. But they don't also understand God as gracious and merciful and compassionate and patient. So they end up with an understanding of God that is lopsided towards judgment and wrath But that fear ends up being a servile fear. It is not a liberating fear. It is a fear that doesn't actually affect anything in us because we live in dread and anxiety. And there are many world religions where such a fear is used over people. But even in Christian churches, such a fear can sometimes be used. Sometimes children have a perception of God because the closest understanding they have of God is their parents. It may be a father or a mother. And the parent is so imbalanced towards the judgment and the wrath and the anger that their perception of God then is servile, just as their way of dealing with their parents is servile. Should our children have a fear of us as parents? And the answer is yes. But it must be a filial fear that has some semblance to the filial fear we have of God. Children who lack any reverence or respect or honor for their parents end up in far greater trouble than those who do. So what is this filial fear? Well, as Thomas Manton said, it is a high esteem of God, a high esteem of His majesty, of His glory, of His power, And it's, in a sense, having continual thoughts of his presence. You are loath to offend God. You are loath to upset God. But you understand God's power as a power whereby he exercises it with love and patience. You see God's holiness, but you see that his holiness is such that his holiness is is also a holiness whereby grace brings you into this holiness. It is seeing all of God, not some of God. 
And you know people can do this. They can make the mistake of viewing God as primarily judge, and so serve all fear, or they can view God as simply love, but then their God becomes a figment of their imagination, and they lack any fear altogether. The true fear of God is the ability to understand God on His terms as He has revealed Himself in all of His attributes in God's Word. And this is something God wants for each and every one of us. The promise we read earlier in Jeremiah chapter 32, He says, and this is the great promise of the Old Covenant, and it moves its way into the New Covenant. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. That's the covenant promise of God. He will belong to His people. They will belong to Him. But then after promising to give them a heart, he tells us on what terms. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. What does God do to keep us from turning from him? He puts his fear in us. Do you see that? That's the context of a promise, not judgment. He doesn't say, because they've turned from me, I'm going to put fear in their hearts. That could be a fear of judgment, which we'll speak of later. But here in the context of promise, he says, to keep them from turning from me, I will put my fear in their hearts. So obviously, there is a positive type of fear that is meant to help us. So when you read Isaiah chapter 11, it speaks of the promises that will be made to God's Messiah. And we read, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and what? And the fear of the Lord. That is what will characterize God's Messiah. He will have wisdom, he will have knowledge, but he will also have the fear of the Lord. So Jesus, in the days of his flesh, offered up prayers with loud cries, and he was heard because of his reverence. He had a filial fear of God because nobody knew God like Jesus Christ, and so he reverenced his great and holy name. So the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of knowledge. That is another positive statement. Or we're told in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 17, that was right at the beginning of Proverbs, but as we move on, we are told, let not your heart envy sinners, but what? Continue in the fear of the Lord all day. Don't envy sinners, but continue in the fear of the Lord. How do you not fall back? Continue in God's fear. How do you not fall back? God's fear is put into your hearts. And so Mary praised God in Luke chapter 1 because his mercy extends to who? All those that fear him. Paul commands the Philippians to work out their salvation who are Christians, therefore, with fear and trembling. Paul says these things. Peter also tells the Christians he writes to to conduct themselves with fear. Conduct yourselves with fear. Or you can go right back to Job. God says, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man. And what makes him a blameless and upright man? Who fears God and turns away from evil. That's what made Job righteous. He feared God. 
In Acts chapter 9, the church is thriving, the church is growing. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So you can actually walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And these are not meant to be antagonistic towards one another, but complementary. Paul writes to bond servants and says, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Now, why do I give you all of these references? Because clearly, those who are to perfect holiness in the fear of God The Corinthians are not alone. This has always been a standard and staple of Christian living, is you live in God's presence. You live in God's presence to such an extent that His love constrains you in such a way that you also fear offending Him. You fear willfully going against His will. You fear displeasing Him because He is your God. Not just God, He's your God. Now you will say, well, Mark, I also read my Bible like you. And is there not a time to be fearful of a punishment? And that's a very good question. I'm glad you asked it. Should we ever be fearful of punishment? And the answer is yes and no. How should we be afraid of punishment? Well, John Murray continues by saying, It is the height of impiety not to be afraid of God's punishment when you actually have a reason to be afraid of God's punishment. So you do not live every day thinking, what am I going to be punished for now? But there could be circumstances whereby you should actually fear God's punishment. So Adam, after he sinned, would it have made sense for Adam to continue walking around the garden and saying, well, whatever, you know doesn't matter. God will overlook it. He's a God of love and so on. Or when Adam hid, was that actually a proper response to what he had done? And so Adam actually did what he should have done. I'm not calling it righteous, but I'm saying that he knew God well enough to know, to be able to say to him, when God says, Adam, where are you? He says, I hid from you because I was Afraid. What was Adam afraid of? He was afraid that God's words, in the day that you eat of it, you will die, would actually come true. So he hid. Now, does this have any other scriptural precedence? Well, of course it does. But just to be abundantly clear, this is how we live our lives, this is how society works. I don't worry every day that I'm going to go to jail for first-degree murder. I don't wake up and get paralyzed by, well, today's the day I'm going to probably end up in jail for the rest of my life because I went and killed someone. But if I decided in my heart I wanted to kill someone, then do I have reason to be afraid of punishment? And the answer is yes. Now, most of you, that's not really a realistic uh, thought pattern, I would hope. 
But do you have reason to be afraid if you go 140 on the highway on the way home when it says 90? And the answer is, you have every reason to be afraid of a speeding ticket if you transgress. So take any law in society that is placed there. If you willfully break that law, you have every reason to be afraid. Now, what does this mean for us as Christians? Well, there are so many different places, but if you just turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, because I want you to be convinced as I am that there is a time and place for Christians to be afraid only if they have reason to be afraid. So why do we meet together and come to church? Well, one reason is given in verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Usually you need to be around someone for that to happen. Comma. Not even a period, not a new paragraph. Not neglecting to meet together. So how do you stir one another up to good works? You have to meet together. As is the habit of some. So some of these professing Christians were neglecting to meet together. And when they were neglecting to meet together, what other commandment were they violating? They were violating the commandments to stir others up to good works. Because they weren't there, they couldn't do what was commanded. But encouraging one another, could they encourage if they weren't there? No. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, there's no new paragraph in the Greek. But because of the weakness of the flesh, we need paragraphs. So verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, what is the context? The context is the habit of some not meeting. So if we go on sinning deliberately, such as not meeting together... After receiving the knowledge of the truth so that we know we ought to meet together, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's no worse threat that can be offered than this one. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Should you be afraid of God? The answer is yes and no. But the only time it is yes in terms of punishment is if you have reason to be afraid. So if you, sitting here tonight, decided for the next few months you're going to take time away from God's people, stop going to church, live your best life now on your terms, you would be someone who would fall under the threat that is labeled here. We are sensible enough, are we not? We are wise enough to understand that people get sick. 
that people, for one reason or another, maybe go away or something happens, please do not walk out of here and say, I missed church that one time. I'm going to hell. Pastor said so. There's no grace and mercy in the church. Please don't go to the uh, reductio ad absurdum. But at the same time, don't miss that there's a very severe warning here to people who were in the new covenant who deliberately did not meet together and did not encourage others and did not stir others up to good works. And so, when you forsake the people of God, you are forsaking God. And when you forsake God, you are forsaking the God who provides a Savior. And when you forsake the Savior, you forsake the forgiveness of your sins. And I promise you, if it wasn't so clear, I wouldn't preach that. This is not preached in the church today, I can assure you. This type of message would be viewed as unloving, but the actual truth of the matter is, it's one of the most loving things you can tell someone to persevere on God's terms, among God's people, and to be built up by God's people, to be encouraged by God's people, and not to ever take matters into your own hands. So it's not just Hebrews chapter 10. There is a fear of punishment for If you read John 15, those who do not bear any fruit, he prunes. Spiritual pride in Romans chapter 11, where the Gentiles are engrafted in, and Paul says, listen, you're not even the natural branches. If you start to become arrogant towards those who have fallen away, God can also take you in your arrogance and take you away from what you've been engrafted in. Don't be proud spiritually. Unbelief in Hebrews 3 and 4. Many did not enter God's rest because of unbelief. Or spiritual lukewarmness in Revelation chapter 3. The Laodiceans were lukewarm and Christ said, I will spit you out of my mouth. The toleration of false teaching in Genesis, Revelation chapter 2. People who willfully tolerate and know it to be false teaching. Or Galatians, I warn you as I did before that those who live according to the flesh cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what keeps you from falling into those areas whereby you would need to fear God's punishment? And the answer is actually the fear of God. The healthy fear of God where you live in His presence. Now, That's going to be my main point of application. What does it mean to live in God's presence? You know, in Paul's writing in Romans chapter 3, and it seems to be a little bit heavy, you know, their their tongues are like, uh, uh, throats are like open graves, the venom of asps is on their lips. And then he gets to the end in verse 18, and he sort of summarizes the whole problem with fallen humanity. And in verse 18, he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That godless people have no fear of God before their eyes. And I apologize for quoting Mr. Murray so much, but he was so valuable to me on this. He said, The eyes are the organs of vision, and the fear of God is appropriately expressed as before our eyes. Because the fear of God means that God is constantly in the center of our thought and apprehension. And life is characterized by the all-pervasive consciousness of dependence upon Him and responsibility to Him. 
that we have a responsibility towards God, but even before we have a responsibility towards God, we have to be dependent upon God. And to be dependent upon God is to know that God is actually able to meet your every need. The absence of this fear means that God is excluded not only from the center of thought and calculation, but from the whole horizon of our reckoning. God is not in all of our thoughts. He says figuratively, He is not before our eyes. And this is unqualified godlessness. Is God before your eyes? When God is before your eyes, that will keep you from backsliding. That will keep you from godlessness. It's when God is shifted to the left, shifted to the right, and before your eyes there's a world out there, and it will suck you in and destroy you. The fear of God must be before your eyes. The God who is holy, the God who has loved you with an everlasting love, the God who is patient towards you, the God who is merciful, the God who is righteous, all that God is, is before you. And going back to Job, because I think this beautifully connects the point that I'm making. Job is described in verse 8 as one who fears God, but remember in verse 1, right at the beginning of Job, He is described one who feared God and turned away from evil. Now, if you were to describe any one of us in verse 1 there, I think the book should end. Job was a man who feared God and turned away from evil. Next book, let's move on to David. Let's move on to someone else. This guy's sorted. But then God says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job. And then Job goes through the ringer, so to speak. But notice what is said at the end, which I think is a different way of describing what is said at the beginning. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now what? Not now I fear you, but now my eyes see you. That's what Job had to get to. Did he fear God? Yes. But there's another way of also describing the fear of God. Now my eyes see you. As a Christian, is that what you're able to say about the reverential filial fear of God? My eyes see you every day. And my actions are determined by the fact that in my vision of life, I always have you before me. And this is a great and glorious thing because I will conclude with this verse, Psalm 147, verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. So many times the fear of God is connected with the love of God. So God takes pleasure in those who fear Him, who have before their eyes God, And those who, because they have God before their eyes, will necessarily then hope in his steadfast love. And that fear protects us, it keeps us, it draws us in, and ultimately prevents us from sliding into all sorts of sins. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you for your word and ask that the fear of God will be before our eyes in all that we do that it will not be a fear that generates mere dread or terror, but rather a fear that brings us into your presence so that we may believe in the God of the Bible. 
And not just a God of our imagination, but the God who is of such pure eyes than to look upon iniquity and yet forgives iniquity through Jesus Christ. So bless us to that end, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.